0: Uh, we're going to read again from, this time we'll read the rest of 1 Peter 2. Uh, we're not going to read the rest of the letter, chapters 3 and 4 and 5. Uh, I'm going to try to speak out of 1 Peter 2 and 3 and 4. Uh, I do have another talk on 5, but I'm not going to get that far today. We're just going to try to get through to the end of 4, bringing out some of the big themes in these three chapters. But for the sake of time, we'll just read 2. So we're picking it up at 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your great grace and mercy to us in taking us out of darkness and bringing us into your wonderful light. And we thank you also for the good lives that you have marked out for us and prepared for us in your word. And so we pray that as we reflect on this next part of Peter's letter, that you would teach us again, your goodwill for our lives and that you'd help us to live well in the light of your word according to what you speak to us now so that our lives would adorn the gospel and point people to jesus and it's in his name that we pray amen well let me read to you a blurb from amazon.com for one of the best-selling christian books of 2017 goes like this in this controversial bestseller the benedict option rod dreyer calls on american christians to prepare for the coming dark age by embracing an ancient christian way of life from the inside american churches have been hollowed out by the departure of young people and by an insipid pseudo christianity from the outside they are beset by challenges to religious liberty in a rapidly secularizing culture Keeping Hillary Clinton out of the White House may have bought a brief reprieve from the state's assault, but it will not stop the West's slide into decadence and dissolution. In this book, Rod Dreyer argues that the way forward is actually the way back, all the way back to St Benedict of Nursia, the 6th century monk, who was horrified by the moral chaos following Rome's fall, retreated to the forest and created a new way of life for Christians. He built enduring Christian communities based on principles of order, hospitality, stability and prayer. His spiritual centres of hope were strongholds of light throughout the Dark Ages and saved not just Christianity but Western civilization itself. Today, a new form of barbarism reigns. Many believers are blind to it and their churches are too weak to resist. Politics offers little help in this spiritual crisis. What is needed is the Benedict option, a strategy that draws on the authority of scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church. The goal? Embrace exile from mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. These are the days for building strong arcs for the long journey across a sea of night. Interesting, isn't it? What do you think? Is that what Peter is teaching us? Dreyer paints a picture in which there are really only two options for the church under fire. Compromise with the world and its values, which he sees in a lot of the American church, or retreat, withdraw, create a counterculture, build strong arcs. It's hard to know which to choose, isn't it, if you're faced with those two options? Do we compromise with the culture? Well, well no, we can't do that. We take our cues from our Heavenly Father. But is retreat from the culture really then all we have left? The good news that Peter has for us in this chapter and the rest of the letter is that God in Jesus shows us a better way than that, a more positive way, a more engaged, proactive way, neither compromise nor retreat, but here it is, doing good, following in Jesus' steps and trusting that just as when he was persecuted and killed, God the Father cared for him and raised him from the dead, so our Heavenly Father will care for us too. I've only got two points in this talk. Saved for the good life, and saved to point others to the one who truly is good. Uh, And and again, the first point is going to take most of our time. Saved for the good life. Let's start there. Saved for the good life. Well, by that I mean saved for the life of doing good. And you've got to realise that the message of the Bible is crystal clear on this. Uh, Go right back to the beginning. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt under the thumb of Pharaoh, and God called Moses and God struck Pharaoh and brought them out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Uh, he brought them through the Red Sea. God was fighting for them. God was saving them. God was delivering them. And, and in case they'd missed it, God declared, declared to them right there at the Red Sea, I, the Lord your God, will fight for you. You need only to be still. God saved his people out of Egypt. Uh, they contributed nothing. Their good works made no contribution to their salvation. But then he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them his Ten Commandments and he said, Now obey as my people. They came to the edge of the promised land and they faced the mighty city of Jericho, you remember? Uh, They were fearful, how are we going to make our way into the promised land? And God showed them yet again that he's the one who saves them. And so he gave uh, Joshua that crazy plan, march around the city once a day, yeah, every day for a week, and then seven times on the seventh day, and then God made the walls crumble, and the Israelites contributed nothing to the defeat of Jericho. It was God who saved them, God who rescued them, and then He brought them into the Promised Land. And He said, "Now you are My people, obey." They were languishing in exile. Fast forward in the story a little bit further, and it was God who raised up Cyrus the Persian he sent them back from exile in Babylon. It was God who sent them the prophets and the leaders who built, rebuilt the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. It was God who saved them and then he called them to obey. And this is what you see all the way through the Bible time and time and time again. It's God who saves us by his power through his mighty arm on his own without us because of his undeserved grace, his generosity. And yet time and time again, God calls his people whom he's saved to trust him and so obey him. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And so here it is again in Peter. Uh, we saw this morning that it's by his great mercy that God has given us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But now we need to see that God who saves us without our good works calls us to live good lives for his glory. And you can't miss it in this section of Peter. Chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Chapter 2, verse 15. For it's, by God, it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Chapter 3 verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, the NIV says, but it's exactly the same word, if you do what is good and do not give way to fear. Chapter 3 verse 10, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Chapter 3 verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Chapter 3 verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then the conclusion, chapter 4 verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should submit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You see how much Peter is underlining this through chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Christians are people who are saved to do good. If you ask Peter what we're saved by, he'd say by God's mercy and free grace alone, shown to us in Jesus. If you'd ask him what are we saved from, he'll say from sin and from death, from the futile ways of life handed down from our forefathers. But if you ask him what we're saved for, Time and time and time and time again, he'll tell you we're saved for good works, to live good lives for God's glory. And so John Wesley was exactly right when he summed up the Christian life like this. Do all the good you can, to all the people you can, in all the ways you can, as long as ever you can. (laughs) He's read Peter. Of course, he's repeating, do good. So what does it look like, Peter? What is the good life to which God calls us? And Peter gives us three words in these chapters, one, two, three, and four. Submission and obedience and love. They're probably not the three words you would have chosen if I'd asked you, what's the good life? Certainly not the three words that most people in our culture would uh, throw back at you if you say, what's the good life? But these are Peter's three words. Here's the good life, the life of doing good. Submit to authorities, obey God, and above all, love. So let's explore those three a little bit. First, submission. The general principles there in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. How are you feeling? We don't like it, do we? Is it just the Australian psyche? Is it our conflict heritage? Well, maybe partly. Maybe it's also just our sinful human psyche. We don't like submitting to authority. And yet, Peter tells us, submission is good. It's part of the good life. Because in submitting to the authorities that God has established, we're actually submitting to him, our Heavenly Father, who's ordered the world and established authorities for our good, to protect us and to provide for us and to ensure peace for us. So here's God's word. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And so here in chapter 2, we're called to submit to governments, whether to the emperor, verse 13, as the supreme authority, or to governors, verse 14, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, which good? The good of submitting to the authorities, that by doing that good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And so we're also called to submit to masters, uh, not that any of us are slaves, like many of the Christians reading Peter's letter were slaves, but many of us are employees or find ourselves in one way or another under non-government authority in the workplace. And It's not the same as slavery, uh, but there is an analogy. And so to verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And we're called to submit, uh, those of us who are women and married, to husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. It's a difficult topic for us, isn't it? (laughs) This is countercultural teaching. And so it's important for us to be clear about what submission does and does not mean. Let's start with the negative first. Submission does not mean that the one in authority to whom you are submitting is better than you, more dignified than you, more valuable than you, more human than you. Governors and governed, boss and workers, husbands and wives are of equal dignity and worth. It's not about intrinsic value, it's about ordered relationships. Submission also does not mean becoming a doormat checking your brains out at the door, uncritically accepting whatever the one in authority says. Uh, On the contrary, good authority, any good authority worth their salt, will be keen to hear the contributions and the criticisms of the people they are leading. Submission also does not mean putting up with abuse. It's sad but true that all too often in a fallen world, those in authority use their authority to abuse those they're meant to care for and protect. And when they do that, submission doesn't mean putting up with that abuse because they're answerable to God, who has placed them in authority. And so it's right to complain and to protest and to take whatever steps are right and necessary to stop the abuse. So that's what submission doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the one in authority is better than you. It doesn't mean checking your brains out at the door. It doesn't mean putting up with abuse what does it mean submission means willingly ordering yourself under the one whom god has put in authority over you in a way that's appropriate to the relationship in the case of governments that means obeying their laws and paying taxes in the case of masters it means supporting their initiatives in the case of husbands it means following their lead Of course, there sometimes comes a point where the one in authority leads you into sin or wants to lead you into sin, and at that point, like the apostles in Jerusalem, we need to obey God rather than people. But that's the exception rather than the rule, and the rule still stands. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. This is part of what it means to do good. This is part of the good life to which God has called us. And so we submit for the Lord's sake because the Lord has ordered his world Which means when we submit to the authorities that he's put in place, we're submitting to him, to our Heavenly Father, who's put those authorities there for our good. The flip side of all of this, of course, is that when God puts you in authority over someone else, you become God's representative. And so you need to provide the kind of proactive, loving care that reflects God's proactive, loving care for his people. It's interesting in the letter Peter doesn't address governors and masters and my only guess is that's because none of the Christians to whom he was writing were governors or masters. But he does speak a word to Christian husbands and this gives us a pattern for Christians in authority. Chapter 3 verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands and Christians in any kind of leadership role, be considerate of those you are leading. Be considerate of your wife, husband. Show them respect. And don't think for a second that your leadership role that God has given you makes you any better than your wife. No, she's your equal. Equal in dignity, equal in worth, equal in destiny. She's co-heir with you, Peter says, of God's gift of life. The inheritance that God has stored up for you, he has stored up for her as well. And so, husband, it's your job to be on the front foot with her and with your children, thinking about the needs of your wife and your children, taking the initiative towards your wife and your children for their good, like God does with his authority over us. Well, that's the first part of the good life, submission. But there's more, of course. There's also obedience, another word that makes us stop and think. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in their body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather, here it is, for the will of God. Now sinful selves don't like this idea of living according to God's will, do they? It feels so restrictive. We want to live according to our own will. We want to make up our own rules. And we've wanted to do that from the beginning, haven't we? That's the first sin when Adam and Eve turn their backs on God. No thanks, God. I'll do it my own way without you. I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. But when God saves you, part of what you begin to learn is that there's a wonderful freedom, actually, a paradoxical freedom in living according to God's will because you're living according to God's design. Our boys are still beginning to learn that toys work best when you follow the maker's instructions. We uh, went all out and got them a drone for Christmas. Pretty good Christmas gift for boys, I would have thought. Thanks, Dad. Wonderful gift. Well done. On the packet, it says, "Do not fly the drone over water." <laughs> Christmas afternoon. Oh, let's fly it over the pool, Dad. And away they go. <laughs> there goes the drone. <laughs> it's a lesson that's hard to learn, isn't it? But things work best when you use them according to the maker's instructions, according to how they're designed to work. And so God's will for us, God's law for us is not arbitrary or harsh or random. Now, of course, he designed us, he created us. He's written his law into our very beings, into the very fabric of the universe. And so when we live according to God's will, we're living according to the way that we are designed to work best. And so it's no surprise that when we live according to God's will, following God's law, life works And the opposite is also true. When we sin, when we disobey God's commands, when we walk away from his good law, life doesn't work. Verse 3, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. And you know from your own experience, don't you? When you think about your past sins and where they got you, sin distorts you. It corrupts you. It dehumanizes you. It breaks your relationships. Sin leads you into dead ends. But people who don't know our Heavenly Father don't understand that. They're lost in darkness, as Peter says. And so, verse 4, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Our friends who don't know God instinctively think that there's more life, more joy More satisfaction to be had in doing things their own way than in doing things God's way. And and that's all of us, in fact, on our own. So people won't understand when you don't live their way that they'll heap abuse on you, Peter says. And maybe you've experienced that. But press on. When you obey the will of God, you're not following some random or arbitrary set of rules, but the will of your Father who designed you and knows you intimately and commands you what is best for you whose law gives you perfect freedom. You're living the good life. And so submission and obedience. There's a third part as well. Love. We saw this this morning already in chapter 1, verse 22. Now that if you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. It's there again in chapter 3. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. And again in chapter 4, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is Christian Living 101, isn't it? Uh, Love takes many forms. And so Peter goes on in chapter 4, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Be sympathetic to each other, he says in chapter 3, verse 8. Forgive each other. Be compassionate and humble towards each other. Christian love takes a hundred different forms and is designed by God to be a beacon in the world, pointing people to Jesus, to the work that he's doing amongst us to make us new. What did Jesus say about love? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And here's Peter, Jesus' disciple, teaching us the same thing. But it's actually even more radical than that, both from Jesus and now we'll see from Peter, because God calls us not only to love each other, fellow believers, but also he calls us to a love that overflows to others, even to those who make themselves our enemies. And so chapter 3, verse 8, he says, All of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be humble and compassionate. And then he continues immediately, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Where did Peter get that idea from? From Jesus, who taught love your enemies. When people hate you... Do good to them. When people insult you, bless them. It's radical, isn't it? What else did we expect? Peter had learnt from the Master. He was there when Jesus was arrested. He was in the courtyard when Jesus was interrogated and mistreated and spat upon and beaten. He was watching from a distance when Jesus was crucified. And he reminds us what he saw with his own eyes. When they hurled their insults at him, chapter 2, verse 23, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You see, there's the model. There's the pattern. There's the example for the Christian life. Jesus shows us the way, not only in submission to the authorities that God has put in place, not only in obedience to the Father's will, but also in love for others even love for those who hate you. But how can you do it? Isn't it unrealistic? The fear is when you live like this that, that you'll miss out, isn't it? That you'll be forgotten or get walked over. When someone insults you, everything inside you wants to fight back, doesn't it? We want to fight fire with fire, to give as good as we get. But Jesus here shows us a better way because you see if someone insults you and you insult them back then you've been caught up in exactly the same sin that's affected you when someone hates you and you hate them back you've allowed their hate to dehumanize you and so jesus shows us a better way when they hurled their insults at him he didn't retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly chapter 2 verse 23 entrust yourself to the father know that he is in control, that he will judge, leave it up to him and learn to love. But I can hear you asking, how is this the good life? Jesus lived like that and it got him killed. How is that the good life? And so it's like Peter is saying, well, you've got to read the gospel story all the way to the end because when you do that, you'll remember that Jesus did entrust himself to his heavenly father that he cried out onto the cross, oh, on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God heard that cry and on the third day raised him from the dead. Peter was there. Peter saw the empty tomb. He saw Jesus alive. And so, so now he's urging us, follow the path that Jesus laid out for us. It might not always look like it's the good life, but it's the life that God approves. It's the life that God has marked out for us, the life of submission to authorities and obedience to God's will, and above all, the life of love, even for those who hate you. You might know the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint who took the gospel to the, well, tribe it was, in Ecuador in the 1950s, and tried to evangelise them uh, for a while before they were murdered by the people they were trying to reach out to. Fifty years later, in 2000, I had the privilege of meeting a guy called Steve Saint, who was Nate Saint's son. Uh, You can only imagine, you can't imagine that boy's life, right? Imagine growing up knowing that your dad had been murdered by the people that he was trying to take the good news to. What does that do to you as a kid as you try to process is this good news really good news? Is this project that my dad involved himself in really a good project? It got him killed! Uh, you can only imagine the kind of thoughts and processes that would have had to have taken place in Steve's head. Uh, but I, I saw him interviewed, uh, and then chatted briefly with him afterwards. And my very strong impression is he, he wasn't bitter or twisted. He hadn't withdrawn, and he certainly hadn't compromised. He was actually back in Ecuador, serving the people who killed his father. And you think, how is that possible? Uh, And there in the same interview, they had a guy there, Minkawe, his name was, who was one of the men who held the spear, who killed his father. And there they are, arm in arm, (laughs) as brothers. It was just incredible. I think, How is this possible? And the answer is, God, in his grace, had saved Steve and saved Nate to do good works, and they knew it, and so they were able to entrust themselves to God who judges justly, and even under those extreme circumstances to continue to do good, to not withdraw, but not to compromise, but to throw themselves in, trusting the Father to raise them up. The missing part of the story, of course, is that Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, together with Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, lived the same kind of life. They, they reached out after their husband and brother had been killed and kept reaching out to the women in the tribe uh, and over a number of years shared the good news with them as they shared their lives with them and the whole tribe were saved. So here it is. This is the good life for a church under fire. Entrust yourself to the Father, do good and leave the rest up to him. That means humbly submit for the Lord's sake to those he's put in authority. It means obey his will as he reveals it to us in his word. And above all, it means love each other with a kind of love that spills over to those around you, and even embraces those who are your enemies. It's simple, but I hope you can see it's radically countercultural. It's the counterculture that Rod Dreher is searching for in his book, *The Benedict Option*. He says we need a Christian counterculture. This is it: submit to authorities, obey God's will, love above all, even your enemies. But it's not the kind of withdrawn and separatist and self-preserving, self-protecting counterculture of the Benedict Option. No, it's, a, it's an on-the-front-foot, engaged, proactive, serving, doing-good kind of counterculture. Full of love. And when you live like that, people are going to notice. And they'll start to ask you questions. In fact, that's exactly how God designed it to be, as we saw in the last talk. And so that brings us to the second main point, which is that God has saved us to do good and saved us to point others to the one who truly is good. We saw this last, uh, earlier today. This has always been God's plan. The nations were meant to look in on Israel and say, how they live in there, it's weird, but it's good. Why do you live like that? And the world's meant to look in on the church and say, the way you live in there, it's weird, but but it's good. Why do you live like that? And that's exactly where Peter picks up on it in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. For the original recipients of this letter, this meant being prepared to give a reason for your hope when they put you on trial. But in whatever situation we find ourselves, when we live God's way, it will stand out. People will notice, maybe not straight away, but at some point, and they'll ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Why do you always speak so respectfully about the boss when everyone else is slandering him behind his back? I've noticed that. You never join in. What's going on? I've noticed you coming out for us with drinks on Friday night, but I've noticed you've never got drunk. Six years now we've been doing this, and never you've got drunk. What's going on? The way your church community looks out for each other is really something. I've been in lots of sports clubs and social groups through the years, but I've never seen anything like that. What's going on? Are you prepared to give an answer? Uh, that's the picture that Peter is building for us. Uh, What are you going to say when people ask you that question? After I finished high school, I was an exchange student in Germany uh, and I was young and not very wise and I thought I'll just pick up German on the plane or when I get there. (laughs) So I took a phrase book on the plane and I taught myself a few phrases and I landed with my host family uh, and for the first three weeks after dinner, I was very proud of myself uh, My host mother would serve up dinner, ask me if I wanted seconds, and I'd say, nein danke, ich bin voll. I'd learn it from the phrase book, I thought. Nein danke, ich bin voll. Nein danke, ich bin voll. Every night for three weeks. After three weeks, my host father takes me aside and says, you really shouldn't say that. I said, why? I'm I'm just trying to be polite. No thanks, I'm full. That's the translation, I thought. He says, it's just when you say nein danke, ich bin voll, it means, no thanks, I'm drunk. Every night for three weeks! <laughs> what you really should say is, Nein danke, ich bin satt." No thanks, I'm satisfied. That, that's the way. So there's my tip if you're ever in Germany. No thanks, I'm satisfied. I learnt through that that there's a world of difference between knowing a couple of phrases from a phrase book and, and being fluent in a language. And I wonder if we in the church have got a bit of work to do to become fluent in the gospel we've got we've got some phrases from the gospel phrase book Jesus died for our sins Jesus rose from the dead Jesus is lord uh, but how fluent are we in speaking the gospel into the complex situation that we find ourselves in in 21st century Australia can we talk about how the gospel relates to the complex realities that face us uh, in refugees and asylum seekers uh, in climate change in economic policy uh, can we speak the gospel into the issues that are raised by education Uh, Can we speak the gospel into the same-sex marriage situation? How fluent are we in the gospel? Because when people notice our lives and ask us for a reason for the hope that's in us, we need to be ready to speak the good news in response to their questions. And there's all sorts of good training courses around, and uh, one of the jobs that we have to do with each other in the church is to train each other in this kind of fluency in the gospel so that we're ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And so that kind of training is well worth doing, isn't it? I want to encourage you to invest in that kind of thing if you ever have the opportunity. But at rock bottom, what's it all about is pointing people back to Jesus, isn't it? When people ask us, why do we live like that? When people say, well, I've noticed that, what's going on? The answer, at rock bottom, really is simple. I live like this because of Jesus. He's the reason for my hope. There's more to say, of course, and you'll need to unpack that, and that's why doing some training can be really useful. But that's the place to start and that's also the place to end. Jesus is the reason for the hope that's in me. He's saved me and he's shown me a better way. Do you want to come and see? We had a beautiful example of this in our church last year. Uh, We had a couple turn up from mainland China, David and Violet are their names. Uh, They uh, had very little Christian experience but they wanted to join a church in Australia. They landed in Hornsby and so they googled church in Hornsby. They found us, they rocked up on the first Sunday uh, and they never left. Uh, We started to get to know them uh, and it turns out that they'd been running a business in China that had got into some serious trouble uh, and they needed to borrow some money and they'd rung around all of their friends and family and associates. They were after $100,000 and nobody could help them. Uh, And then Violet got on to a friend that she'd been through high school with who now lived in another town and this friend said, Yeah, sure. I'll lend you $100,000. Pay it back if you can, but if you can't, no problem. Uh, Violet says, why are you doing this? I haven't seen you since high school. Uh, you know what the lady said? I've met Jesus. <laughs> she said, Violet, can I send you some text messages? Violet says, yes, okay. Uh, and so for the next two years, this lady sent Violet a Bible verse every day. <laughs> First thing Violet would wake up in the morning, she gets a Bible verse and a phone. Uh, for every day for two years, this lady sent a Bible verses in her phone until, until Violet says, I've got to find out more about this, goes to the other town, travels to meet a friend, a friend shares the gospel with her, Violet is saved, uh, and about six months after that, they come to Australia. Violet's husband, David, has been watching all of this, not a Christian, uh, and yet he, so, he says, when we come to Australia, we're going to find a church. <laughs> and they, so they hooked him with us. He says, I want you to teach me about Jesus. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> And so we did Christianity Explored with him. We locked him into one of our small groups. He saw how people loved each other. And within six months, he'd given his life to the Lord. Why? Because he'd seen God's people doing good with a kind of love that overflows. And when his wife asked about it, the lady was ready to give a reason for the hope. It's so simple. And this is God's vision for his church. This is God's design for the life of his people. Not compromise with the world. That's not an option. We take our cues from our Heavenly Father. Not retreat from the world either. Not not withdrawing into a ghetto. Not trying to protect ourselves and preserve ourselves. No, instead, trusting our Heavenly Father and doing good. A kind of front-footed, engaged love for the world submitting to the authorities, obeying God's word and doing good in Jesus' name.